turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. You'll find it on page 903 in the Church Bibles. And we're looking this morning just at verse 11 as we continue our series in uh, John's Gospel. And uh, the theme, uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Real Christian Unity. What a huge challenge that is for us today um, with all the different denominations, but all the division in our culture at large. How can we be a body here locally? How can we be a body uh, on, a, on a national, international scale of Christians that truly experience all that Jesus is praying for here? What a huge challenge. And yet, I think we have here in this uh, one verse some real help, and that's what I tr- want to try and bring out for us. So John 17, verse 11. Let's hear God's word. Jesus is praying. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Hmm. This is God's word. Do please sit down. Real Christian unity. I mean, how, do we, how are we actually going to experience that? I mean, we're pretty united as a church, I think, by and large, and praise God for that, but I'm sure we have our moments of uh, distinction or tension that come from time to time. Something's decided you don't feel quite good about or something else happens you're not sure you agree with. But then we look around at the, the culture around, the, the national, the political situation, the, the cultural divide, the the wars and the rumors of the wars, there's all this constant division, all that the, the internet with all its people fighting against each other, throwing out words that are so inflammatory. And, and then we, we look at the, 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 the fighting in inner cities, the shootings, the hate. And, and here's this vision Jesus has that they may be one even as we are one. What a glorious vision. Of course it is. We all want that. We want to be united with our families. We want to be united with our friends. I mean, Jesus prays that, we, that, we would, that all men might know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And we want that. We want to be like that. And yet it's so hard. How do we love each other? How do we get united in a way that is truly practical? You know, it is a difficult thing. I was thinking I'm going to begin with a little illustration. That, that, uh, that, um, an illustration that illustrates. There you go. What an amazing thing. Um, an illustration that illustrates... Uh, this, both how difficult it is, but also how possible it is. It's from the political realm. It's Abraham Lincoln. So Lincoln, a fa- famous movie, Steven, Steven Spielberg produced in 2012 about Lincoln. A just amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. And, and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis does an extraordinary job playing uh, the great uh, president, Abraham Lincoln. But that movie is based on, upon a previous book that came out in 2005 called Team of Rivals. And the author of that book, she described what she called the political genius of Abraham Lincoln, who managed to bring together disparate people into his cabinet. Indeed, people who'd been his enemies just previously had been campaigning against him for the presidency. And he brought them all together. And they're all in his cabinet. And it was this team of rivals. It's just an amazing thing. And, you know, if that's possible even on the political realm, how much more should we as a church, should we as Christians, should we in our families be truly united? And yet, as I say, it is hard. We want this, we don't get it. You know, the inner desires, they, they, we, 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 we want this and then that doesn't happen and someone else gets and we feel jealous or we feel disappointed and then we're divided. How do we develop real Christian 
unity. Well, here are three practical tools. I can give you three practical tools and I can close with a testimony from my own life. And I don't always do that, but a testimony from my own life of how I've seen this. So here are three practical tools. The first one is this. Get clarity. So we're talking about how we develop real Christian unity from John 17 verse 11. And the first of these three practical tools is get clarity. So in the beginning of this verse, this is where I get it, Jesus there is praying and he's giving us a clear picture of the situation. What he's saying is I'm no longer in the world but they're in the world and I'm coming to you. In other words, here is the gospel story in miniature based upon a clear understanding of the real situation. And unless we're clear about that, we won't really know what we're dealing with. Unless we're truly clear about what the situation is, we won't be able to solve it. We need to get clarity. And what Jesus says is, I'm no longer in the world. Now, of course, when he's praying this, he is physically still in the world. And, you know, he's praying, and there he is, right there in the world. But, but Jesus knows that. He's not speaking literally. He, he's, he's projecting himself forward to that moment when he dies, rises again, and then goes to be the Father. And he's saying that from this point of view, I'm no longer in the world. And he prays in just a couple of verses further on from this, saying that, you know, I'm praying to you as I am now still in the world. So he knows that he's literally still in the world as he prays this in verse 11. But the point is, he's giving us clarity about the situation. I'm no longer in the world. This is the reality they're going to have to experience. In other words, Jesus is not physically with us. And what a difference it would make if he was. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you think of some sort of characteristic classic argument among Christians that was going on in some committee meeting or other, and then Jesus literally and physically walked in. That would make a difference, do you think? I mean, how can you argue about the color of the carpet and Jesus turned up, you know? But he's not in the world. He's here spiritually, and we need to walk by faith because we cannot see him physically, but he's not physically here. That, of course, does make things more difficult in many ways. And that's why we long to be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Where we'll be known as, uh, as we know him. We'll see him face to face in that great mysterious description that is, is beyond our comprehension exactly what it means. But we'll see him much more clearly than we see him now. But that's not our present reality. And so, of course, we experience uh, all sorts of division and difficulty because of it. But not only that, getting clear, seek clarity, this is the first practical tool. Not only is Jesus not physically here, also we are. <laughs> we are in the world. We are in the world. I mean, it's, it's perhaps easy when you come to church, we hear this beautiful music, you know, and the singing, and, and we're together, and everyone's so, you know, we have this moment, we think that life should always be like this, should always be like this, and then we get outside, and you know, someone says something annoying or we're in the car park and someone reverses into our car and, you know, and we say, not hallowed be thy name, but something else comes out of our lips, you know, and, and, and you know, we're in the world. And this is just reality. And life is tough. And we get sick and, and we can't, just, you know, we're, we're broken people. And so many of the difficulties that we experience for disunity are made worse by not having clarity. We almost think that it's possible to bring heaven on earth right here and now if we just had the right trick, the right solution. But that's not the world in which we live. There is a constant possibility for disunity and tension because we're sinners, we're broken. I, I am. I have desires I wish I didn't have. I have, I, I'm tempted. I know you are. 
We live in this world. And it's important to be clear about that. To be clear about the theology of the situation in which we actually live in this world. Not therefore to have unrealistic expectations of the possibility of things being perfectly okay. If we just had the right political solution, we wouldn't have any sin anymore in America. Yeah, really. Not going to happen. It's a far bigger and grander solution that Jesus has than merely a political solution. We need to be clear about what the real issue is, what the real issue is, and to seek that clarity. And Jesus says, I'm coming to you, I'm going to the Father, I think with his mind, therefore, on when he's going to return, that he's coming back. And as we'll see, there is this glorious vision where there will be a, a city, a new heaven, a new earth, every tribe, nation, language together, and worship of him, it's going to happen, he's coming back, but not yet. And we live in the now and the not yet, as many theologians have put it. We're in this world, we're in a broken world, we're broken people, and we need to seek clarity about that. And not assume that we know the answer when someone is divided from us, but to seek clarity. For instance, say you're in a situation at home, in your marriage, or in a friendship, or in work, or even in a church situation, and something is said or done that really annoys you, frustrates you, and offends you, and you feel hurt, what do you do? Well, you're in the world, these things are going to happen. What do you do? You say, hey, you know, I'd love to get a cup of coffee with you sometime. Can we make a time to do that? You sit down with them over a cup of coffee or tea, if you like. That's also all right. You can have tea, too. And you say to that person, you know, when you said that, help me understand what you were trying to communicate. And as you do that, that person will go, oh, no, what I meant was this. Oh, now I understand. You see, we think that we live in a situation whereby we have perfect communication and we can perfectly understand what someone else's desires are. No, we don't live in that place. We live in the world. We live in a post-Babel, the Tower of Babel, post-Babel world where communication, desires, you you cannot read someone else's heart. You don't have x-ray vision. You don't know. You need to seek clarity. Help me understand what you're trying to achieve there. I don't get it. And as you have that conversation, which is humble, saying, I don't, you know, help me understand. They'll help you understand and invite, and then you're, then you're moving forward. You've got to seek clarity. So first, practical tool to develop Christian unity is to realize the situation theologically that we're in. We're in the world, this, 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 this world system that we live in. This is how the Bible describes the situation in which we live. We're in the world. And then practically... Seek clarity with any particular situation you're in based upon that theological framework. Help me understand what you were saying. Help me understand what you were trying to communicate. Help me understand why you did that. And you're coming humbly. You're not saying, I know why you did that. No, you don't know. You have no idea. Help me understand. You seek clarity. And it's so important, you see, because often when there is an issue of division, division comes from confusion. And the solution to confusion is clarity. Seek clarity. There's a kind of fog. I can't understand why they don't get along. Well, probably they can't understand either. Seek clarity. Because we live in the world, as Jesus describes the theological situation. We then apply it practically. First of all, seek clarity. Second, keep the main thing the main thing. So this is the second of these three practical tools to develop real Christian unity. Keep the main thing, the main thing. So Jesus here is doing this, I think, in the middle section of this um, verse where all is now built 
building up to the so that. So when he says that they may be one as we are one, it's a so that. So this is all building up to that moment. And in the middle section, when he says he's praying, Holy Father, actually the only time that Jesus now ever prays in John's gospel, those words, he prays the Father, but never Holy Father. So he's doing something unique and specific here. Holy Father. And then he says, keep them in the name which you have given me, which is a very surprising thing to say. What does Jesus mean by saying that the name of the Father has been given to Jesus, the Son. What does that mean? Lots of people have wondered about that and been confused about it. Here's what I think. I think what Jesus is saying is, you see, when, you, when you're given the name, when you act in someone else's name, you're acting upon their authority. You're acting in their name. And what Jesus is saying here is that he, in a sense, has been given the name, that he is now revealed increasingly as in, 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 in his life as he's coming towards the death and resurrection he's going to be glorified he's revealed increasingly as God himself in flesh the incarnate son of God the name of God is on him and therefore he has that authority so here's Jesus he's saying holy father not just father but uniquely now in John's gospel holy father and the name he's talking about is the authority that comes with Jesus as the son of God and that is keeping the main thing the main thing so in other words we often think in Christian circles that the right way to get unity is to clarify what's primary secondary and tertiary what comes first second and third and you unite around what's first absolutely correct and yet Jesus is doing more than that so let me tell you why it's correct and then show you what Jesus is doing even more than that so you've got to unite around what's primary and then understand what's secondary and what's tertiary what's the third importance so right in the middle is your conviction what your, convic- your convictions are about the gospel, the core gospel, you're convinced about that. That's your, the area of conviction. And if you're not united around that, then we're not really united in Christ. We have a different gospel. And there are times we have to say, you know, that actually is a different gospel. Actually, we're not united with those people because that is not the message that Jesus taught. There are areas of conviction. There's a wrong kind of division, but there's a right kind of division because we need to be those who are united in Christ and on a path towards the fulfillment of God's plan in the new heaven, the new earth, where every tribe, nation, and language will be united. And that comes in Christ. And we cannot, there are areas of conviction, and we've got to be clear about that, the primary thing. But then there are issues of community. You know, once you're a community, you've got to make decisions about all sorts of things that are not issues of conviction, but there are issues around which we unite. We decide that we want to meet at 8, 9, 13, 11 o'clock. That's an issue of community. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but it's something we need to unite around. If we're not united around it, no one will turn up at 11 o'clock, you know. Uh, and, and so there are issues of community. And there are, you, you decide a, a certain church has a, a way of doing its government, a way of being organized. These are issues of community. Yeah, we've got to make decisions about those things, but they're not primary, they're secondary. And then outside that, the third circle, are issues of conscience. Yeah, I think the Bible says this, but I know Not every Christian, biblical Christian, agrees with me on that. That's okay. It's an area of conscience. There's liberty among Christians to disagree on issues of conscience. For instance, baptism. Some Christians think you should baptize babies. Other Christians think, no, you should wait until someone's a believer. This is an area of conscience. 
We have liberty of conscience. There have been great men of God who disagreed about it. Jonathan Edwards, who I spent many years studying the Bible, was, believed that you should only baptize babies. Charles Spurgeon, who I spent many years looking at, thought, no, you, should, you shouldn't. I'm sure Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards are enjoying Jesus in heaven, and Spurgeon has discovered that he's right, you know. And, 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 uh, so, but, but we, you know, I, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not, a, it's an issue of conscience, and in all seriousness, you know, it could be that it's the other way around. And that's fine. It's just fine. And it's an issue of conscience. So we have conviction, community, and conscience. So that's, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. But Jesus, I said, he's doing that, but he's doing something more. He's doing something even more, I think. So Holy Father, these are issues of conviction. One of the distinctions of being a, a Christian is that you pray to God as your father through the work of Jesus. But now it's holy father. In other words, he's exalting the fatherhood of God as holy and not just intimate, but awesome holy father. And in the, obviously Christians are united around their worship of Jesus as the son of God, the, the way to be saved. No one comes to the father except through, through me, Jesus says, his atoning work on the cross his death and resurrection these are issues of conviction but now Jesus says you, the name has been given to me in other words it's his authority as the Lord Jesus is being lifted so this main thing it's not just like oh you know that's the primary thing doesn't matter very much no it's been lifted in an authoritative way as he prays holy father you've given me this name now keep them in this name keep them in this Main thing, the main thing. Keep them together around this power of the gospel. Let me, let me uh, describe for you uh, sort of a couple of ways practically this can help. This way of keeping the main thing, the main thing. One way is just a human illustration and the other way is a, in a sort of Christian circle illustration. So when I was a teenager, um, we had uh, one teacher who taught us at school who was a very good teacher. But actually, um, for one reason or another, she wasn't very good at keeping order. I don't know why. I knew she was a good teacher, but every time there was a class that she was teaching, the thing was chaos. There was division everywhere. But this teacher entered into a kind of pact with another teacher just down the corridor who we knew liked us, but I can tell you was scary. And whenever things got out of hand, for some, some mysterious way, he would happen to turn up and we'd all settle down again. I remember one particular instance when we were running riot in that classroom and uh, this other teacher just walked into the door and we noticed he was there and he just looked at us. And we went to our places and our desks, I can tell you. Holy Father. The name of Jesus. How can you possibly be disunited, Christian, from another Christian for whom Jesus gave his blood? How's that even possible? And the, the, uh, the churchy illustration I was going to use came from someone who, I was in a meeting of different Christian leaders and one eminent Christian leader, and there was some division in the room, and one eminent Christian leader just looked across the table, stared someone in the eye, and said, that would be impossible to do because of the power of the gospel. And we were united. Holy Father, the name of Jesus, how could we possibly be disunited when we're one in him? He's exhorting this main thing. So, 
Three practical tools to develop Christian unity. First, seek clarity. Both theologically and then practically. Help me understand why you said that. Seek clarity. And then also, second, um, keep the main thing the main thing. Primary, secondary, tertiary. Or I like to think of it as conviction, community, conscience. And then you're exalting the main thing, the, the name of Jesus, the holiness of the Father God. And therefore, how could we possibly, how could we possibly be disunited? And then the third uh, practical tool is look up. Here's, here's the vision you see. Jesus says that they may be one as we are one. I mean, what a vision. And this just blows out of the water any kind of human, human ideas of unity. That they may be one as we are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look up. In other words, the model of Christian unity is not organizational. You know, you can, be, you can be organizationally united, but actually really emotionally and mentally and truly disunited. You can be in the same denomination as someone, but have different issues of conviction and be completely disunited for that person or different areas of community and not really connected. Jesus, the model here is not about, you know, Christian leaders meeting together and having a conversation. That's a good thing to do. It's not about, you know, Christians in different denominations having a meeting together and talking about how they can get more united. Though that's a perfectly good thing to do. But no, look up that they may be one as we are one. The model is not just organizational, nor is the model uniformity. I mean, think of it. That they may be one as we are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not uniformly united. It's a tri-unity. They're different. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one. It's not organizational. It's not uniformity. There's a difference there. It's a higher and grander kind of unity. It's a unity of soul. It's a unity of heart. It's an actual oneness, somewhat mysteriously. I think the closest we ever get to either experience this or see this outside of the church in human terms is in a really good marriage. At least that's the ideal of marriage. You've got two people who are really quite different, and yet you, you know they're one. They're one. And Christians, that's, the, that's a little emblem, a little sign, a little symbol of this Look up that they may be one as we are one. See, Jesus, through his work on the cross, has established our unity. We don't have to create it. We are one. We're one in the conviction that, uh, of the gospel. We're one in Jesus' work, making us one, regenerating us so that we're part of his body. We are one. And yet we're not fully experiencing that oneness yet that will happen in the new heaven and the new earth, that they may be one as we are one. And yet that is something we should strive for and work for as we look up. It's always hard work to develop Christian unity. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says that you should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Think of that. Every effort. You don't give up easily. You don't say, I tried once or twice. It's you look up that they may be one as we are one. You make every effort. What does that mean? It means you sit down with that friend of yours and say, look, hey, we, we, need, a, we need to have a conversation. It means you don't give up in your marriage. It means you don't give up on your, on your church. You know, it's not like church shopping. It's like, I didn't like that this week, and so I'm going off to the other church. No. 
We've got that they may be one as we are one. That's the ideal. That's what's on the table. That's what we should be striving for. We make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and it has a mission purpose. In our divided and polarized world, if, there's, if they can look at us and say, that's a group of people, they just love each other. They love each other. They're one. They're different from each other, but they're one. What a mission that would be. What a witness that would be. And so we look up to what Jesus has for us, that we would be one as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be one. Try a tri-unity, a unity of spirit, a spiritual unity, far more, far grander than a mere organizational unity or uniformity. So we began with an illustration. I'm going to close with a personal testimony, how I've seen this, because it could seem like this is just not real, but I tell you it is, and I've experienced it. Here's my testimony. I've, uh, obviously this is not where I was born, America. I've worked in England and America, and there's two or three other countries I've lived and worked in as well. And I've lived and worked in four or five countries, depending on how you count it. And um, one of those countries, um, you know, had some cultural things that are really quite different. In fact, they all do. They're all, all different. I love the different cultures. I love the different food. I love the different ways people dress. I love the different attitudes. And one of those countries... Uh, they had a particular tradition whereby if you were sending flowers to a, a, f- a, f- a funeral, you would send an even number of flowers, two, four, six, eight, ten, that kind of thing, an even number of flowers. So obviously, you know, in our culture, if you want to encourage someone or say something nice to someone, you might send them a dozen red roses or a dozen flowers or something like that. But to send someone in that culture a dozen red roses is the equivalent of saying, you know, aren't you dead already? Or I wish you were dead or something like that. And so you can make these cultural faux pas. And you can get discouraged about all the disunity in our political system. You know, if you're ever discouraged about the disunity in your political system, just look at what's going on in Brexit in Britain. They would encourage you amazingly. <laughs> Could be worse. But I've lived in these different cultures and different countries. And I've seen all sorts of different points of difference, but I've seen two points of unity. The first is the power of the gospel. In every place... I've ever lived or preached or worked. The gospel just has this God-given ability to just speak. We're broken. We need a savior. And there is a savior. And he's here for you if you'll receive him. And then the other point of unity I've seen across cultures and countries is God's people. It's just amazing. You go into that hut. You go into that apartment and the apartment building is all broken down and half destroyed and they have no lights because they've had no electricity that week and they had no water either that day. You go into that church and they do things so... It's all different. And you look across the person's Bible, it's in a different language. And you hear them pray. And they hear you pray. Boy, are you one. Every tribe, nation, language, it's happening. 
one day as we look up, oh, it'll be amazing. We'll be together. So let's keep on developing real Christian unity. You know, you can go fast on your own, but if we're to go far, we'll need to go together. Oh, Lord God, we do pray that you would help us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit here at this church. We also pray, Lord, that you would give us, uh, as your people throughout this country, throughout the world, increasing real unity of heart, mind, and soul, that we would be one even as you are one. Lord, I pray for families or friendships, perhaps even here, that feeling friction or people who are annoyed at each other because of something that happened 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I don't know. I just pray, Lord, that there'll be progress there by your Spirit and that you would generate even more real Christian unity that you have won for us because your work on the cross. And one day we will have completely. I pray, Lord, that we would develop that even more as we seek clarity as we keep the main thing the main thing and then making effort every effort we look up that we'll be one as uh, you are one we praise you and we love you and we say these things in Jesus name Amen